By now you'll have heard or seen that I'm working with a new golf app called Tangent, who are also sponsoring this show. It's the smartest AI caddy in golf and is able to recommend not only clubs to hit, but target locations based on the math behind strokes gained and your own personal shot patterns. Unlike many other shot trackers, it also takes into account and adjusts for hazards that are out there. It has sensorless tracking with an amazing automatic swing detection that you can use with your Apple Watch or your phone without any need to buy any attachments for your clubs. And my favorite part, the post-round analysis data helps you immediately see where you can improve and gives you simple breakdowns that you can dive into if you want much more detail about your stats. It then links this data to recommendations and actual practice drills that you can use to improve. Getting measurable data for both on-course and practice drills makes Tangent one of the best game improvement ecosystems that I've ever seen. So download Tangent for free on the Apple App Store or at tangent.golf and use promo code SWEET30, that's S-W-E-E-T-3-0, for 30% off. So you'll get a free trial, and if you like it and want to continue, it'll give you 30% off a subscription. So just try it out, play a few rounds with it, and I know you'll love it. So that's Tangent, T-A-N-G-E-N-T, and enter code SWEET30. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to another episode of The Sweet Spot. This is John Sherman from Practical Golf. You can always find me at practical-golf.com. Quick product announcement for all you launch monitor junkies out there. There's a new PRGR 2021 model that's out. You can check out my review. I tested it a bit. It's on the site. And we also have deals for our readers as well. Who am I with here? Who are you, Adam? I am Adam Young from adamyounggolf.com. So you can go to my website and get loads of free blogs, free articles. I throw some free ebooks and things occasionally. You'll have to search for that one, though. I don't think I've got that available right now. But there's loads of free stuff, so just keep coming back. But this PRGR, how good is it? I've tested like the Swing Caddy, and that, I found that pretty accurate, at least in terms of if you're a decent striker of the ball. It was giving me really good numbers, but, you know, occasionally if I, if I came across a person who would fat it or toes or maybe open or close faces and it changed the spin loft, it would throw them off a little bit. But that was the PRGR. So the original one, this was a launch monitor from Japan that got repurposed for the U.S. market back in, I believe, late 2019. And when it came out, I looked at it. I'm like, this looks like a piece of junk, but it worked quite well, you know, for reasonably struck shots indoors and outdoors if you had it set up properly it gave you pretty good yardages swing speed ball speed the other benefit is you could use it as a swing speed radar if you're training with a system like super speed golf so there's a lot of pro golfers who are using it that way so the newer model they upgraded the sensor and one of the things they fixed was wedge readings they made that a bit more accurate it was missing some shots you know if you were launching the ball super high it would be missing them just because you know these 
quote unquote budget launch monitors don't have as big of a sensor as let's say a GC quad or a TrackMan. So it would miss some of those shots, but they fixed that and it's got a bigger screen. So essentially they just updated the sensor a bit and it's more accurate than the prior model. That was pretty good. So, you know, for it's $229 now, it's a pretty good value. If you're doing swing speed training or you just want to practice in your backyard or at the range and get some swing speed, ball speed and yardage numbers. Even when they're, or if they are not 100% accurate, which I found them to be pretty good, but even if they're not, they're still valuable, right? Because, you know, you can practice relative to what you're already doing. So say, for example, I hit on my quad and it goes 160 and I hit on a PRGR and it goes 155. It's like, okay, that might not be tour level accuracy, but you can still, when you're practicing, you can use that as a benchmark to see if you're going up or going down, or you can use it for games as well. So, you know, set yourself a target, like I got to hit it 150 to 160, see how many times in a row I can get that number as well. How do you use it? I've used it. I mean, obviously, we've spoken. I have a SkyTrack, so I use that a lot of the times. But I personally think the, the greatest tool that you can use it for or as a tool is for wedge yardages. And that's something that, I mean, I tested it. You can see in my review, I tested it up against my SkyTrack with intermediate wedge shots from like 30 to 80 yards. And it was spot on. And I'm pretty good with those yardages. So when I hit it, I have a fairly good confidence. I hit that about 65 yards. That's really the training. I tell a lot of people to do it because there's so many golfers out there who have never spent the time to hone those distances. I mean, you even have Dustin Johnson who admitted to not doing it for years. And when he did, he won a major. Not to say that everyone else will achieve that success, but I use it a lot for that swing speed training. You know, I've done a lot of training with super speed golf and physical training, you know, apropos to our conversation with Mike Carroll last week. So I use it to track my swing speed. It's also a swing speed radar. So even if I'm hitting balls on my SkyTrack, SkyTrack doesn't measure swing speed directly. So I will use the PRGR separately to see how fast I'm actually swinging my driver. And as Mike said in that episode, if you are doing training for swing speed, that's crucially important to get that feedback. So other than that, yeah, those are two main ways I use it. And then you can benchmark your yardages, whether you're at the range or at home. Like I said, it gives pretty reasonable calculations. There's no launch monitor out there that's perfect, but it's pretty close. A lot of people have tested it against TrackMan. And if you have it set up optimally, it's between 2 to 5% usually if you can get it set up right. So it's pretty good. Cool. So no majors are promised with that. No, no US Opens I'm promising. So what are we talking about this week? We are looking at differential practice versus calibration practice. Okay. Why don't we start off with you defining those for everyone, just so we're on the same page here. All right. Calibration is what you would do normally. It's what 99% of people are doing. I think it's a an important part to have in your training. So calibration will be doing what you want, you know, trying to hit the sweet spot over and over, trying to hit your target over and over, trying to hit the ground in the right place over and over. Or even if you look at this from a swing change perspective, it could be hitting certain positions or doing certain movements over and over. So you'd kind of see this as the repetitive ingraining of one thing on the scale if that makes sense. Now, differential practice, you could think of as exploring the scale. So you could explore this quite wildly. So that could be hitting extreme toe or extreme heel. 
It could be hitting big hooks, big slices, and it could be hitting intentional top shots even. And I'll talk about which ones of these are most fun and which ones of these I don't use so much. But in terms of mechanics, it could just be overdoing the movement. You know, say you've got a flat left arm at the top of your swing and you're trying to get it steeper. Well, instead of calibrating and trying to get to your ideal place, you'd actually go the other end of the spectrum. You try and swing it like Furyx. You get that lead arm really steep. So that's differential practice. So think of differential practice as doing what you don't want necessarily. And so I suppose people are listening to this and they go, why on earth would I want to practice what I don't want to do? Because there's this mantra out there. I'm sure you've heard of it. First, it was practice makes perfect. And then you get these clever people come along and say, no, 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 that's not right. It's perfect practice. Practice makes perfect. And now there are even cleverer people coming along saying, well, actually, if you practice subtle variants of a skill, you can improve quicker. So there was an article, I think it was in Forbes magazine, I can't remember exactly, but they were looking at some of the research showing that they asked people to practice subtle variants either side, so exploring the scale. It wasn't too extreme. They said they couldn't do it too extreme or it didn't transfer. But if you did little subtle variants of what you wanted to do, you learn quicker. So, you know, that might be if you're learning a musical instrument or something, you might be practicing the same song quicker and then slower, or you might be practicing different finger variants of it or something like that. How do you use this? Do you use this, John? Is this a yeah. new concept to you? It's funny. When I first started coming across your work five, six, seven years ago, you were giving names to a lot of the things that I probably did as a junior golfer. So... For example, when you bring up this differential, giving that type of practice a name, that for me, when I was a 12, 13-year-old, was just doing all these wild shots in my parents' backyard or at the driving range. I was just playing and seeing how I can manipulate the golf club to make the ball do what I want, just for fun. No one told me to do it. I was just experimenting. And while I wasn't certainly a standout junior player... I think I progressed pretty quickly for someone who took up the game later on as a 12 or 13-year-old. I got skilled pretty quickly. And, and looking back, I think that type of practice helped because, you know, when people say, why would you do something like that? Looking back and thinking about the skills I have now as a golfer, I believe that doing all that weird, crazy stuff however you want to define it or give it this name differential, it allowed me to like set up all these different reference points for manipulating the golf club and making it what I wanted it to do. So while I wouldn't hit those types of shots on the golf course ever, it was kind of in like, like my library of skill, motor skills, however you want to define that. I believe it allows me to hit what my stock shots are today. You know, you and me talked about that in other episodes. We'd like people to just kind of keep it simple and playing one shot over and over again when they can on the course. But I believe I'm better at that shot because I did all this type of differential practice or probably you would define as variability practice as well. Hitting big fades when I'm going to play a hook on the course. Hitting flop shots with my wedges even though I'm not going to hit those on the course. It was really teaching me different skills and what I like to call a club face manipulation. So yes, I have done them. I think I stumbled across them and I still try and do them from time to time. But I think it was really important in my development as a golfer. 
I love what you say about reference points and library. So I call it building a feel map. So, you know, you're mapping out all these different, as you put it, reference points. So, and I do it very specifically with players as well. So when I'm on my quad, I will get people to, uh, I mean, I, I do it differently depending on the level of a person. If I'm doing it with a complete beginner, it's just, can you reference right and left for me? So hit one right. It doesn't matter how far right, just hit it right. Now hit it left. It doesn't matter how far left. So they're just mapping out two reference points because that's going to help. Like you say, when it comes to calibrating that shot, that center shot they now have those reference points at least to a certain extent and i wrote an article a few years ago and i'm sure i've mentioned this on other podcasts but i called it the hidden secret to straight golf shots and the reason why i call it the hidden secret is because i was hitting shots one day warming up just waiting for my class to arrive and a few of them were there they were it was a group coaching thing so there were 10 people supposed to be there. I think seven had arrived, so we were still waiting for three. And they were just watching me hit. And at the end of it, they, they said, wow, you hit it so straight. You're like a robot. And I immediately thought, well, actually, I felt like I was hitting it quite bad today. And what I was doing was I was constantly saying to myself, oh, that one went left. I need to open the face a little bit more. Oh, crap, I've overdone it. I need to close it down a little bit. Oh, I've overdone that. Okay. So basically what they didn't see was my mental process of calibrating. And my mental process of calibrating was trying to call upon those alternate fields. Does that make sense? So I'm trying to, you know, I'm basically reacting to the previous shot and introducing a new field to neutralize it. Yeah. I mean, obviously for people who've been listening to our uh, growing library of episodes here, which again is non-sequential and evergreen. You can go through them all at any point, but you'll see a common theme that we keep talking about this, that we love simplicity in terms of the golf swing, in terms of repetition saying like, I like to play a draw on the course. I won't fade it unless I absolutely have to. Let's say there's trees around me or something like that. But as we've been saying is the reason I can play that draw for the most part is accessing all these different feels with whether it's my club face presentation being a little more closed or open at impact, the path of my club, am I coming to in to out? Do I need to neutralize that club face strike? Am I striking it too much on the heel? Maybe I need to access that toe feel. So it's counterintuitive. And I think when you defined calibration in the beginning where you're doing the same thing over and over again, it's kind of what golfers have always defaulted to because they just don't know any better. We expect you show up at the range and you just kind of fire away. You're changing clubs. I'm going to hit 10, seven irons and 10, six irons. And you're just essentially doing the same thing over and over and over again. And if you do have some poor habits in terms of your technique and skill, I believe what you're really doing is just ingraining those deeper into your motor pattern. At least I think I that's what's happening. Yeah, I would say so. But it can also be fake learning as well. If you're standing on the range just beating balls. So I would say there's a very big difference between how I used to practice as a kid before I got all my differential training. So I would hit balls on the range and basically it, it would be hoping. I would be hoping that that shot came out straight. And if it didn't, I'd hit another one, hoping that that one was straighter. Uh, there was no real conscious correction there because I didn't have those reference points. So it worked because if you beat enough balls, your unconscious can correct for you, for many people. 
But now, because I have those reference points, I have those conscious feels because I've mapped them out through differential practice. I can be in control of that process. So when I'm practicing, it's, oh, that one went 10 yards left, which isn't a bad shot. But I would say I need to implement a feeling of opening the face a little bit. And then, oh, I've overdone it. Let's bring it into the middle ground. Okay, there it is. Okay, let's lock onto this feel for a while. Maybe you can lock onto it for three shots or so. But it's a much more conscious process. And I believe that, well, I know it transfers to the course and to your playing ability better because we've seen so many times, oh, I've seen as an instructor, or I'm sure every listener here has experienced it, where they're hitting it well on the range because their unconscious has calibrated the shot and they go on the course and then they snap hook the first out of bounds. It's just snap hooks all day and they don't know how to fix it because they haven't trained it in advance. So again, this differential practice, learning how to hit different reference points, how to feel them is so key when it comes to adjusting on the course to whatever pattern you have on the day. Well, I think it's a more, you know, I'm, I'm listening to what you're saying. It just, it, it gives you a more efficient, path to improvement, I believe. Like you said, there are plenty of golfers who through repetition and that calibration process, there's plenty of golfers who eventually figured it out and got really good. It's not to say it doesn't work. I think what we're trying to say is that if you throw in some of this like opposite practice differential, I think there's a lot of words you could use for it. Then as you said, you can Stop triggering that false confidence that we get on the range when you hit 37 irons in a row and you're in a groove. We know that that situation will never present itself on the golf course. What you described is more common. You know, you warm up, you hit a bunch of balls, there's no pressure on you and you go out and you hit one bad one and all of a sudden you're freaking out and now you can't feel your golf swing. And I think what Adam and I are continually trying to do on this show is is give you this toolkit to access when you're on the course because... We all know golf is a true game of variability. Things completely change on you. Your confidence level, the way you're striking it on the face, your swing path, the weather, the wind, you know, elevation changes. Like everything's changing on you all the time. Yet, unfortunately, in the context of practice, we are putting ourselves in an environment that is repetitious. So we're trying to break that trend here. Do you want to give some examples? I know you have a lot of programs on your site that do this. I don't want to give away all the goods, so to speak. But do you want to get into a little bit of specifics on examples of differential practice that you've had success with, with yourself and other players? Yeah, I can talk about a few drills. First, I want to say that if you're listening to this and you're the type of player, because I used to be this type of player, if you're thinking, well, I want to be like a robot, I want to have robot-like consistency, so therefore this stuff isn't for me. Well, get over it because actually this stuff will help you become more robotic. As I said, in, we're constantly changing as a human being. The biggest thing we have to adapt to is ourselves. And even at my level, with all the practice I've got, I can step onto that practice ground and I don't know what pattern is going to emerge that day. But it doesn't matter because I can adapt to it. If I woke up one day and I've got a 50-yard slice, I can fix it in two shots. 
usually less because <laughs> usually fewer shots so it's and that's actually one of the gauges that I use of how good or how adaptable someone is or how skilled they are is when a problem presents itself how many shots does it take to fix it so yeah that's just a little thing for all you robots out there or people trying to be robots so some specific drills uh, we've already mentioned one hitting right hitting left intentionally that could be boring for most because it's too easy if you are a beginner, that would challenge you. But if you're a better player, it's like, ah, I already know how to hit it right and left. But if I gave you a more challenging thing, such as present the face two to four degrees open, and then four to six degrees open, and then six to eight degrees open, now that is very challenging because you have to do it with some precision as well. It's it's not just, oh, let's whack the face open at any old degree. It's, oh, I've got a, I can't overdo it as well. So now you're starting to feel the boundaries out. That's why I call it feel mapping. And if a task like that is too difficult for someone, I might start with something like present the face zero to five degrees open. Now, obviously, for that, you're going to require some kind of launch monitor that measures it. But there are ways. I'm not going to give away all the goods, but in the accuracy plan, Next Level Golf, I show you different ways of doing that without a launch monitor. You could use just different reference points on your range as well. If there are poles in the difference, you could select one pole and hit between certain uh you know, a certain amount to the right, so five to 10 yards to the right, 10 to 20 yards to the right, things like that. So you're basically mapping out intentionally hitting it offline. Again, why would that be valuable? When it comes to hitting online again, you now have those reference points to use. So if I wake up one day and I'm presenting the face two degrees closed, well, I, I know what it feels like to present it two degrees open. So I can neutralize that. I just implement that feel. Or if the chasing scratch guys are listening, I recall the feeling of what two degrees open is because I've practiced it. I have that within me. I can feel what two degrees open feels like right here sitting and I don't even have, have a club in my hand. It's a really weird it's weird how your brain kind of links all these stuff up and you can you can feel it. I mean, everybody here, if they close your eyes and say, what does a golf swing feel like? You can kind of feel it. It's really weird how our brain does that over time. So if someone showed up to the range and to illustrate club path versus club face drills, you could just have someone for simplicity's sake go out there and try and hit a massive slice. And for some of you, that can be <laughs> incredibly easy to do. And then try and do the opposite, hit the biggest hook you can ever think of. And then in terms of where the club face is pointing for a right-handed golfer, try and hit a massive block where you're just hitting the ball so many yards right of your target and then vice versa, a massive pull. Again, crazy shots. Sometimes you might use them on the course. Like I, I like to hit, if I'm stuck in the trees, I can hit a world-class massive hook like you couldn't believe. I don't think I could do the opposite as well. So these aren't shots that you would necessarily play on the course. But as Adam is suggesting, you're like building up these like small reference points in your brain so that, you know, if you can think of a round of golf as a test, you know, when the test comes that day and all of a sudden you're struggling with the pulls or the hooks, you've got to access like a little bit of the opposite to neutralize it. And we are totally a broken record with all this stuff, but it's that important. And really, I believe that's what golf is. Like your, your golf swing is constantly changing on you. What feels comfortable one week, and this happens to the pros, they'll show up either between rounds in one tournament or between cities. All of a sudden, something changes on them and they've got to get 
the quote unquote feels back. Tiger always said that they have to reestablish the baseline. Now, of course, for them, it's a much tighter window because they're just playing at a much higher level and it dictates that. But this can certainly apply to someone who's trying to break 100 or 90 as well in their own way. Yeah. And even if you don't want to necessarily shape it, which I completely understand, you can still hit your stock pattern. So I, for example, draw 99% of my shots. I can hit a fade, but it's a draw for the most, uh, for the majority of my shots. But I could hit different variants of that draw. As you said, I could hit a big block to the right and I could hit a big hook to the left during this training, this differential training. So you're still hitting your shape but you're just hitting different variants of it because as i said you need to be able to map out how do i hit it more left how do i hit it more right because you are going to need that at some point on the course you're going to have a pattern a bias to your pattern that you don't like and you're going to need to neutralize it and these are the skills that allow you to do it another example obviously again we've talked about it broken record but hitting different parts of the face so hitting toe hitting heel and you might start out with a complete beginner just by drawing a line straight down the middle of the face and say, right, stand here with a putting swing and hit 10 toe shots for me. They can be as extreme as you want, just hit 10 toe shots for me. And then we'd reverse it so we learn the heel side. And then as a player gets better, those windows get narrower and narrower, or they may become more windows. So it could be all the way to hit five millimeters off the toe, then 10 millimeters off the toe, then 15 millimeters off the toe. So now there's some precision involved. It's not just, it's not too easy. Again, you have to select the right task for the right level of player, but I've got players who I can give them three millimeter windows, hit zero to three millimeters off the toe, three to six millimeters off the toe, and they can do it. And they weren't able to do it the first time they tried. You know, I could remember a time, probably the one of the most frustrating times in my golf career. I was 16 years old and I had just traveled to Ireland to play in this big tournament and I had toe hooks. Every single shot I hit was coming off the toe. And I remember I wanted to quit. I think I actually did quit. <laughs> Maybe not in the round, but because I couldn't move it. I literally, I was just so frustrating. I could not move it off the toe. So I've been there. But now, if you ask me to hit more towards the heel, I can do it. I can control it really precisely because I've done all this training. And this is not something that you'd go out and practice for half an hour and say, oh, it's done now. I've got that. It's like, no, you've got to make this a at least a portion of your practice. I would say between five and 20 percent of your training really should be some form of this. Would you say as skill level just in terms of the context between calibration and differential, would you say that for a more experienced, skilled golfer, they'll probably need less differential practice at that point because they've built up that skill and they could focus a little more on calibration, which to me is another word for saying skill maintenance versus someone who's like a beginner, moderate golfer. I would say that and I've seen countless examples of this where people have never even tried it and they start kind of peppering this into their practice. And, and like you said, it doesn't have to be 50% or 75%, but let's say 20%. All of a sudden, yeah. it could start making a difference for those golfers who are trying to figure out like, well, how do I become you know, a 12 handicap? I'm a 17 handicap right now. There's an idea for you. Start peppering that into your practice sessions. 
Yeah, generally, as a player gets better, the extremity that you practice this or the ends of the scale that you practice this might get honed in closer to calibration. So actually, my differential practice and calibration practice look pretty similar on the outside. So my differential practice might be hit it three millimeters off the toe, then six millimeters off the toe, then three millimeters off the heel, then six millimeters off the heel. It's not a big change. I mean, if you look at what three millimeters is, it's really not a big change. But for me, because I'm at a certain level where I can feel that, that is still challenging those skills that I need. So when it comes back to hitting a zero strike, that center, that sweet spot, I have those reference points a little bit either side of it. However, when there's a beginner at play, they wouldn't be able to feel that. In fact, when they try and calibrate it, it's probably going to be three to six millimeters either side. So there's going to be no difference for those players between their calibration and their differential. So for beginners, they need to start out with maybe a little bit more extreme forms of this. So like I said, maybe hitting the extreme toe, then the extreme heel, or hitting as big a slice as you can and as big a hook as you can. I certainly wouldn't give that to a tall player because they don't need it. That'd be too easy for them anyway. They know what that feels like. But if I say to a tall player, present the face one degree open, that's going to challenge them and give them a nice little reference point that they can use to really make their calibration practice more precise later on. And that's an important thing as well. They feed into one another. If you're going to be calibrating what you want, it's a hell of a lot easier to do that if you have the reference points either side. If you don't, how are you going to calibrate? It's just, it's just going to be potluck or, or hoping. Here's another one that I've done in the past, mainly with wedges and also maybe irons as well. And you can tell me what you think about this. I like to play around with my loft presentation. And what I mean by that is sometimes when I'm practicing wedges in my backyard or at the course or the driving range, I will try and take the same exact wedge, whether it's my 56 or 60 degrees and figure out a way to hit maybe three or four different trajectories, like a low, medium, high, and then like crazy high. So what I'm trying to do at impact is manipulate my hands in a way probably mostly with how I'm presenting the handle of the club at impact. Is it de-lofted? Am I adding loft? So that's a kind of practice I've done a lot with wedges and even with full irons as well. Like, can I hit the seven irons super low? Can I get it higher in the air? And I think how you present the club face in terms of the loft, whether you're de-lofting or adding loft, is another crucial skill that is very important for scoring because it really gets down to trajectory and iron play, which we now know is the biggest differentiator in scoring in the game. So that's one that I've done as a kid. I, I still continue to do it, mainly with the wedges. I'll, I'll try and just hit all different types of lofted shots. And again, I don't necessarily bring those out on the course unless I need to. Like there are times on the course where I will try and do a very high lofted shot if the situation calls for it. But as we've discussed in other episodes, we had a couple episodes on wedge play. I'm mostly trying to play the same stock shot. But I feel like that skill of the handle or loft manipulation helps me with that stock shot. Yeah, I like the idea of loft presentation changes. I certainly structure these things into one of the most important skills to learn. And this is, I suppose, a separate conversation. But, you know, ground contact, face contact, face direction are always what I call my big three. Then we have things like path 
you know it's not necessary to change but certainly it, it can be valuable you've got loft presentation so again not necessary to change but it can be really helpful when you're on the course you need to hit different shots certainly in short game shots it's going to be much more important but in long game shots most of the time your stock shot is going to suffice and then you've got things like angle of attack changes that might be quite important because you know you're experiencing different lies on the course if you're in a divot if you're in rough if you're on a nice fairway if you're in a tight lie you're going to need to change the angle of attack subtly at least if you want to play to your ultimate potential and then speed changes speed changes I don't do a, a hell of a lot of work with this. Maybe with putting, I do more of that. So I would ask a player, here's a good drill for you. Set up on a 20-foot putt. Hit one just past the hole. Hit one just short of the hole. And then hit one in between. And you have to start again if you get any one of those wrong. So it has to be just past the hole, just short of the hole, and in between. And once you do all three, you measure the distance between the back and the front ball. And then you repeat the process. And the goal is to get the distance as small as possible. So, for example, if you hit the first one 20 foot past the hole and then the next one 10 foot short and get it in between, it's going to be real easy, right? It's not really challenging. But that's going to give you a 30 foot range between front and back ball. Whereas if you hit one one foot past the cap and then you hit one one foot short of the cap, and now you've got to slot your third ball in between those. That's really, really difficult. And that will give you a score of two, two foot between the front and the back ball. So I play these games and it's almost like a little gamble that's going on in your head as well. It's like, well, I want to hit this one long, but not too long. And then I want to hit this one short, but not too short. Because when we're on the course, how often does that gamble go on in our head, right? We stand over a putt and we're like oh, you know, this looks pretty quick. Let's hit this a little softer. And then we stand over the ball. And we're like, well, I want to hit it soft, but I don't want to leave it short as well. So these gambles are going on in our head all the time. So that game that I just mentioned helps you to deal with that. It helps you to understand that gamble and deal with your own internal mental chatter that's going on. So as well as improve speed control, I've actually done little informal studies on this where I get people to just practice only doing the right speed over and over. So one group hits, you know, three putts in a row at the, trying to just get it at the hole. And the other group plays that game I just mentioned, one long, one short, one in between. And then we test at the end of it and see which one's better in almost every case. As a group, the one that did the differential practice is better. The one that did the long, short, just right. So it's kind of like Goldilocks golf, right? I've, I've heard that said before several times. We have an exclusive offer on one of my favorite golf shoe brands, True Linkswear. They just released their new Lux G shoes, which is their first big release of 2024, and it is packed with a ton of features. The Lux G is available in both men's and women's models, and it combines tour level performance with a new fit and feel. You'll get the comfort that True Linkswear is known for with their Wonderlux midsole for a supportive yet comfortable ride. The Lux G is also fully waterproof with a two-year warranty, and they have designed it with their padded heel lock system to ensure stability throughout the entire golf swing. But they didn't stop there. True Linkswear always pays attention to the small details. There's padding on the back to prevent rubbing against your foot, 
an antimicrobial comfort insole, and the Lux G's come in multiple colors. Sweet Spot listeners can get 15% off the Lux G's shoes by visiting truelinkswear.com and using promo code SWEETSPOT. Once again, that's truelinkswear.com and use promo code SWEETSPOT, that's one word, to get 15% off their new Lux G shoes. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. LinkedIn is not just a job board. It helps you hire professionals you cannot find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to a new perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. Also on LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Just recently, they even launched a new feature that helps you write your job description, making the process even easier and quicker. And they know that small business owners like myself and Adam are wearing so many hats and might not have the resources to hire, so it's a great place to get help. Now here's what you can do. Post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. That's linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. So what do you think makes, you know, for someone, the majority of the practice will still err on the side of calibration. I think we both agree that in that repetitive practice, a lot of golfers aren't learning much. What can you do to make the calibration practice more effective where you don't have to spend five hours at the range if you've got 30 minutes and let's say you are spending 80% of your time on calibration practice? Like what to you defines success there? Well, I think monitoring the big three always, I would do that regardless of what training you're doing. So ground contact, face contact, face direction, they're going to be what determines your shot. So even if you're a very mechanical player and you're working on your kinematic sequence, you still got to monitor those big three, see how it's working for you. And then I would say, we'll take that monitoring and add some numbers to it. So, you know, when I, if someone comes to me and says, Adam, I, I've been playing poorly recently, I would say, well, how are you big three? And they might say, well, I'm hitting it fat. My next question will be, how fat? What's your average? What's your average ground contact behind the ball? And they usually say, I don't know. I say, well, go off and practice it. <laughs> well, I'll show you how to. And so, yeah, when I use the divot board a lot in my training, so every shot a player will make, I am noting down in my little notepad, they hit that one two inches behind, they hit that one four inches behind, they hit that one three inches. And at the end of 10 shots, I can give them an average. I'll say, you average 2.4 inches behind. Because that then is a good reference point for me at the start of the lesson. So by the end of the lesson, that number had better be better you know, in some regard. So at the end of the lesson, if the intervention has worked, which it does in my lessons, then that number's not going to be 2.4 inches behind. It's going to be hopefully zero, but even a 1.4 inch behind is better, right? So if you're calibrating, you still need that feedback and you need to be quantifying it and then make a game out of it as well. You know, challenge yourself, do a 10 ball test and then do another 10 ball test trying to beat it. 
you know, I, I said to you, I can't remember if I said it on the podcast, but I, I'm doing this fitness stuff at the moment and I've joined these apps where, you know, I, I've got my own 5K time in running and I'm trying to beat it each time. And just the fact that you can see what your previous score was, it gives you, it kind of activates that caveman thing inside of you that says, I want to beat myself. <laughs> like I'm logically no, well, this, I'm not winning anything by doing it, but it's still that urge. I want to beat myself. I want to get better. And so I push myself a little harder. And I noticed that there's such a big difference between someone who has done the stages that I just said, who has got specific numerical feedback. They're doing a 10 ball test there's something so powerful about just those two stages there in terms of improvement. Yeah, I mean, I you mentioned the big three. When I'm hitting balls at the range, I'm always paying attention to how did I strike it on the face? Did it feel good? I know it's hard to do with mats. Uh, we obviously keep mentioning the divot board because it does provide that visual feedback for ground contact. That's a big one. I do struggle with that on the course, so I need to work on that. Did I push it? Did I pull it? And how's the curvature of my ball? And then I just keep paying attention to that and I'm making all these adjustments. And it sounds super basic, but like that level of engagement versus like just showing up to the range and like going through the motions... And then layering on these challenges, like Adam said, whether you can get them from Adam's practice manual, his great book has a lot of these ideas. Um, and there's plenty of other games you can play out there. I mean, you can just look them up online. There's millions of them, I don't know about millions, but there's a lot. Yeah, this is the type of engagement that is necessary in practice to alleviate that problem that keeps happening with golfers. It's like, oh, I hit it well at the range, but I don't bring it out onto the course. That's because you're what I call you're in some type of zombie range session where you're just kind of going through the motions. You're not putting pressure on yourself. You're not paying attention to the feedback of the strike and what the golf ball is doing in the air and trying to calibrate and work backwards from there. What could I do to fix that? Can I fix that on the next one? Can I improve my score in this game? That I think is the common element that's really missing from a lot of golfers and was missing from my practice for a long time too. I would just show up and beat balls. It looked great. Didn't think about it too much. And then I go out to the course and it would be a disaster. And I got stuck in the same loop that many of you are currently in, which is like, what am I doing here? <laughs> yeah. I think as you were talking there, I was thinking about a certain game that I play with myself and with some of the better players where we hit shots on the range and I give them certain ranges of acceptability. So, you know, directionally, it might be 10 yards left to 10 yards right. Face strike wise, it might be within five millimeters from the sweet spot. And then ground contact, it might be an inch either side. And so they're hitting shots and we monitor when one of those variables goes out of range. So say, for example, they strike eight millimeters off the toe. I will note that down to them and I'll say to them, okay, that variable has just gone out of range. Now let's see how many shots it takes you to get it back within range. And so that shows me the skill level of a player. And so if, they, if they're good, they can get it back within range within one shot. So, and if they can't, then we go into more differential practice. So that's one of the defining characteristics of when I use differential practice is if someone doesn't have the ability to change a variable, then they need to learn that. 
All right, because if I've got two players on the range, right, and they're both striping it, they're both, they look, both look identical. But then I say to both of them, right, hit one 10 millimeters off the toe for me. I'm putting my money on the one who can do that task as well. Because the one who couldn't do that, the one who, who flushes their neck shot and doesn't hit it off the toe versus the one who does hit it off the toe, as I've asked, the one who does hit it off the toe, they are more adaptable to anything you throw at them. So when we put those two guys on the golf course and we look at them over the course of a year, that guy who has the adaptability is going to be better because they can bring things back into play when things go wrong. It's funny you're saying this because like I'm actually like kind of living this through now. So I'm in the midst of my tournament season. Most of the events I'm playing in, I'm going up against college kids. You know, kids who yeah, they're not like standout D1 golfers, but you know, they are a lot of them are low-level D1 players, D2. They're good competitors, but they're young, you know, they're 18, 19, 20 years old. And over the last six or seven years, I've logged a lot of rounds with these kids. I'm twice their age now. I'm almost 38. And when you talk about this, you know, they all have the ability. They have great physical talent and skill. They can all hit it 300 yards plus dead straight, hit plenty of great iron shots, putt well. But as we know, when you put pressure on any golfer and tournament stroke play events are certainly the most pressure, you start to see where the cracks are in people's games. And what you're describing, the ability to change and adjust on the fly, especially under pressure, you know, I could see that. And they're young, like they have to learn these things over time. I think this is the process that a lot of golfers go through. I'm talking about it in the context of higher level competitive play. But then I think about myself and I, I can kind of hang with these kids now. I'm not necessarily beating them, but I'm, I'm competing against them. And I think that's one of my old man skills now is that I can kind of access my toolkit a little bit better than they can because I have two decades more of experience and not that I can always write the ship, but that's what I, I see a lot of the young kids like blowing up out there. I've seen some really good players shoot some high scores because they just couldn't readjust. And you could say that's youth, but you also see that with golfers of, of all age levels. So you know, it's relative to each skill level, but it's something I do notice a lot with all these younger players that I'm playing with. Anyone can be good at their best. Everybody's good at their best, right? But it's like, how good are you when your worst shows up? And the irony of that is the more differential practice you do, the less often your worst shows up because you could correct it. Like I don't play my worst golf on the golf course because if something, if a bad pattern is occurring, I can fix it and I can fix it very quickly. In fact, I suppose the only caveat to all of this is when you get good at fixing things, you can sometimes be your own worst enemy in that you can overfix things. So, you know, I might start out with a hook and then I know how to fix it. I know what to implement, a more open face. I might just overdo it. But again, this is where differential practice works again, because you're working on what I call the dosage of an intervention. We all know when we're hooking it that we need to open the face, or at least listeners of this podcast will. You need to open the face a little bit more at impact. But how much of it do you do? And again, there's that internal battle, right? It's, well, I want to do it, but I don't want to do it too much. And you're struggling with that. If you practice differential practice, if you train this, these things with precision, 
you're learning precision and the right dosage as well. You're learning how to implement the right amount of a fix, which is huge. And yeah, I'd say, you know, you're talking about playing against these young players. This even happens for tour players, you know, players. I think it's one of Tiger's superpowers. I think it's one of the reasons why he was the best. And obviously this is cherry picking to just suit my own narrative here. But there are tour players out there who, when they're having a bad day, that's it. They miss the cut. And probably because they spend a hell of a lot of time just block practicing calibration stuff. And like I said, that can work, right? If you're beating 10 hours a day of balls, calibration is going to work for you. You're going to play well. There are even tall players who play bad and they can't get out of that funk. Tiger Woods, I think one of the the keys to his consistency, and there are loads of little reference points littered throughout his interviews, is when he was playing bad, he knew how to adapt to it. He knew what to do, whether that was something as simple as changing his aim points, his strategy, or whether it was feeling something else. He practiced a lot of differential practice. He did uh, the nine flights, ball flights drills, which I think was a little excessive. I'm not really big on getting everybody to shape it all different directions. I think it can be valuable, but I wouldn't do a hell of a lot of practice that way. But certainly just the ability to hit more left or more right. These players, at least the top players, a lot of them have these feels and some of them don't. I would say the ones that do have these feels and these reference points are able to adapt to their own mistakes on the course and play more consistently. I totally agree, obviously. It's all about the toolkit, building your toolkit and what you can access on the golf course. And this truly is a relative game. So for someone who struggles to break 100, if they are struggling with like something like they are chunking every chip around the green, well, then they need to learn how to move the ground contact a little bit forward. And if they could do that, that could potentially eliminate a triple bogey, a quadruple bogey, a double. And then all of a sudden they go from shooting 102 to a 95. And then you go down the ladder of scoring. And obviously those fixes get more minute and a little less drastic because you're fixing smaller mistakes, so to speak. But this is golf in a nutshell. I always say it's not, and you mentioned this earlier, I always say this on Twitter, it's not about what you're doing on your best days. Of course, you want to move your score for your best round a little bit lower. But I always think that the area that people forget about and don't really focus on enough is what do you do when you don't show up with a comfortable golf swing? Can you, grinding is a word we've talked about, but the other word we have to talk about here is bringing up those skills from differential practice to apply the right dosage to those problems. You're not going to get it right, but that's how you, you know, when I talk about what I, what I used to be as a golfer and what I am currently, if those bad days showed up, maybe I was going to shoot an 81. Now I can turn that into a 76 and that's applying the right dose. And a lot of it is mental being present in that process and being like, okay, I'm going to do my best to fix this. I don't have my best stuff right now, but I'm going to stay engaged, go through my process and see what I can do. And it doesn't always work all the time, but you know, it's more of a commitment to doing that. So I think before we recorded this, we, we, we were like, maybe we'll make this a 30 or 40 minute episode because we went so long with Mike Carroll last week, but here we are at almost 50 minutes I'm showing on my recording. Do you want to tie up the bow here a little bit? Yeah, there's so much we haven't talked about with this. But yeah, it, I can do a little summary of it, definitely. 
So we're asking people to add something into their practice that seems a bit counterintuitive and something they've probably not done before with this differential and replacing some of that calibration, that repetitive process that most golfers are probably doing. So I think, you know, adding that in, if it's currently not there, or at least applying the right dose of it into your practice sessions, will start giving you these different skills on the course that you do need. Yeah, I would say that you can almost look at this of three different versions of you. When you go on the golf course, you're either going to have your best, you're going to have your average, or you're going to have your worst. I would say differential practice if you're playing your best, you probably don't need this. So if you're playing, if you're hitting golf balls and you're not thinking about much and you're just flushing everything, then it's like, well, you don't need differential practice for this necessarily. However, if you're playing average golf and your worst golf and you're having to bring things back into play, this is where differential practice comes in. And let's face it, how often are we playing our best golf? I might have 5% of my games where I'm in that awesome or firing on all cylinders mode. Most of the time, it's that average to something's wrong and I have to fix it. So this is going to affect you or improve you for, I would say, at least 90% of your games once it's mastered. And you've got to spend, just as, as you spend hours and hours honing your technique and positions, you've got to be doing your skill work on this as well. You've got to be adding a lot of this be doing it for a long time, maybe not adding a lot of this. I don't want everybody to go out and go and just completely abandon all their other forms of practice and just be slicing, hooking, topping, towing, healing. That's not necessarily what you do. You might start by adding 10% of it and see if you can do some of the extremes. And then you would start to hone it in a little bit. But this is something where, um, you know, on the lesson tier, a big or a common theme is someone will come to me with, say, a shank, right? Because that's when most people are on the verge of quitting the game. I'm shanking it. I'm, I, it's not fun. It's never fun if you're shanking it. Well, I've used this so many times where I'm like, what are you trying to do? And they say, well, I'm trying to hit the sweet spot. I said, well, screw that. Let's do this for a moment. Let's try and hit the toe. In fact, let's try and miss the ball completely. I want you to miss the ball and brush the grass to the inside. And they do it. Everybody can do it. And I say, see, you have everything you need to not shank it. You just need to work out now how to control how much of that to introduce. And then I might go to let's nip the ball right off the edge of the toe. So I want you to hit a real toe shank that shoots 90 degrees right. And then I say, let's hit off the shiny part of the face. And then we work back towards the toe. And then all of a sudden we find that point where they're hitting shots flush. I've done that process so many times with shankers. And when they repeat it over and over, the shank just disappears. Or it, it either very rarely comes back. Or if it does come back, they know how to fix it much quicker than before. It's not one of those rounds of golf where they shank one it's like oh i might as well walk off the course now and i'm sure many of our listeners are doing that i used to have as a kid where i'd hook the first one out of bounds left and then i just think well that's me done for the day <laughs> you know your first shot will determine what the rest of your round is going to be whereas now i know how to fix a hook so it's not all right it's a little annoying but it's not the worst thing in the world so yeah i would say the biggest to kind of summarize some of this I would say differential practice, you could define it as structured play. So you're playing around with variables, but there is some kind of structure to it as well. With calibration practice, you're basically only working on precision. 
right? You're working on how precisely can I hit the sweet spot? But with differential practice, you're working on precision because it's how precisely can I hit the toe and adaptability. So it's you're learning how to hit different parts of the face precisely. And you're working on awareness as well, because when you do these things, you start to become more aware of what does it feel like to hit more towards the toe? What does it actually sound like when I hit the toe? What does it feel like when I hit the toe? How does the ball react when I hit the toe or with an open face or closed face? As I say, it's great for people who can't change something as well. So if you have a pattern that is horrible, say you have a big old slice Try and snap hook the hell out of it. Try and present that face 45 degrees closed for a few shots just to get a feel for what the opposite is like. And one thing I haven't mentioned here, I'm just going to kind of prime this, is when I'm on the golf course and I make a practice swing, I can feel whether that shot would have gone left or right. And then I can adjust from there. So I might make a practice swing and I say to myself, oh, my God, that would have gone 20 yards left and then I weaken off my grip or I do something to open the face a little bit more and then I walk in at the shot and hit it and there are more times where I do that and I hit a good shot than I do that and hit the uh, you know I, I could say at the end of it I've overdone that so I would say that that skill helps me a lot on the golf course the ability to sense what would have happened in a practice swing and then put a, a quality adjustment in before. And that is honed from differential practice. I can feel what it feels like to hit it left much better because I've practiced it. So does that one make sense, John, or am I completely mad? No, I think for my closing thoughts on this, I echo everything that Adam said. I've done this kind of practice. I think it's added a ton of value to my game. And for those who have never tried it, I think the best part about it is that it could be fun because it, it reminds me of those days when I was younger and just playing around. And I think, you know, if, if you're an adult listening to this, it's a way to kind of get out of that funk. You know, I think some people just show up to practice thinking that, oh, it's just something I have to do to get better. And a lot of people, they do it and don't get better. So, I think this is a way to break up the monotony of your practice and just have fun with it. You know, don't necessarily put any expectations on yourself, but as Adam said, it is kind of a structured play. So get wild with it, hit a crazy hook, hit a crazy slice, try and hit it off the toe, the heel, chunk it, hit it thin. And I think over time, it will give you that skill, that ability to what I always refer to as manipulating the golf club, or at least having more skill on those stock shots. You know, me and Adam want you to play kind of like a quote unquote boring style of golf where you're hitting one shot shape. But despite the counterintuitiveness of this type of practice on the surface, it will help you with that stock shot that I, I believe very strongly in. So that's my closing statement. Try it out and have fun with it. Here's the analogy for that. If you want to drive your car down the street and stay within the lines, you better have the ability to move more right and left. <laughs> if, your, if your steering wheel is locked in place, you're not going to stay within the lines too long. Certainly. So a, that a, lot more, a lot more simple, but yes, that is an analogy. <laughs> that curving road is basically the variability that gets thrown at us from from day to day whether from the course or from ourselves, and you've got to the, have the ability to adapt to it i often say like if if aliens were looking down at the roads from a bird's eye view they would look and say oh look these cars are all staying perfectly in line they must be locked in place somehow they don't see the little guy inside actually steering it left and right it's that it's that calibration 
information that we need. So I'm going to actually add one point here. And so I think we have time because it's not an hour yet. But there was a study that I did very early on in my career. So when I worked in Austria, we, I had this influx of beginners constantly. It was called, it was a five-day course. So they would come in, they'd have no golf experience. And then five days later, we had to get them course ready, basically. And so I used this as an opportunity to study different types of training and see how it affected people. And I actually did this. I would, with one group, I would just say, right, spray the face, hit the sweet spot. This is the sweet spot. Let's work on hitting that over and over. And we, so we would spend 90% of the time doing that kind of work or 100% of the time doing that work. Then with another group, I would do only differential practice. So I would say, this is the sweet spot. I want you to hit toe and heel, toe and heel, toe and heel. And then a third group, we would do a mixture of it. Now, at the end of it, so we did a pre-study, a pre-test, sorry, and a post-test to see how many could hit the sweet spot. At the end of it, what happened was the worst group for hitting the center was the one who had done calibration. So it's so counterintuitive, and it completely throws out the perfect practice makes perfect mantra. The best study or the best group was the one who did the combination. So doing some of your practice trying to hit the sweet spot, but also doing some of your practice trying to hit toe and heel. The funniest part about it was the second best group was the one who'd only done differential. So the ones, the group who had only tried to hit toe and heel were better at hitting the sweet spot than the group who had tried to only hit the sweet spot. So completely blows your mind if you've listened to kind of pop golf instruction or pop any instruction really any kind of coaching on motor learning theory and there's some research coming out to kind of go along with that as well so i wouldn't say that study is definitive i would say there's plenty of individuality within that there are plenty of confounding variables and different ways that you might use that but in general i like to add at least some of this differential practice because it seems to work on a different level and improve you improve different skills as a golfer i think most people have nothing to lose by adding it so try it out give it some time to develop and see what happens do we want to wrap it up there yeah, if it, here's my plug then. If you want to learn loads of differential practice drills as well as a, a ton of other stuff, you can get my Next Level Golf program online if you want to dive into a lot of information. Or if you want something simpler that leads to more improving one skill, I have the accuracy plan. So that's if you're missing left and right, that would be good for you. And I have the strike plan. So that's if you're missing long and short, so fat thins, heels, toes, things like that. And so I've got plenty of differential practice drills that relate to those given skills. Awesome. And you could always find my stuff at practical-golf.com. As always, thank you to everyone for listening, giving us feedback and encouraging us to do more episodes. We will be back with another episode next week.